If you're a senior executive looking to transition to boards, check out our Fast Start Guide to Board Success. In this short guide, we'll answer all of your questions about landing a paid board role and we'll share some of the rookie errors executives make when trying to climb the board ladder. Jump on our website, boardcoachinginstitute.com.au or click on the link in the show notes to access your free copy today. If you're looking for board success, let us show you how. If you want advocates as part of your business that are working around the table with you, you've got to have the right environment. Otherwise, I think, you know, in terms of volunteer boards, that's going to be a struggle to get volunteers to spend time and effort that they could be spending with their family or doing something they love to come onto a toxic board. And we haven't even spoken about the legal and regulatory requirements. When you're looking at some of the regulatory and legal environment, this is something that should be at least in that top three. Hi, I'm Sally Parrish, Amazon best-selling author of The Essential Field Guide for Company Directors and founder of the Board Coaching Institute. I've been in, on and around boards for over 20 years. And if you, like me, are passionate about the boardroom, then this podcast is for you. And I'd love you to join me on this mission to decode board success. What is it that sets some non-executive directors apart from the rest? How can you enhance your leadership skills so you can be highly effective in the boardroom? And what will it take to make board success a reality for you? I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I love making them and that they unlock the secrets for you to gain a competitive advantage and have massive impact and influence in your board roles. Let's get started. Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Let's start by, if you could introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on right now. Hey, Sally. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm Carolyn McSweeney-Grant and I am, uh, I don't know even what to call myself anymore. I kind of come into organisations to help them solve a lot of their people issues. So I guess the best way to describe myself is this organisational designer that has a a marketing and organisational neuroscience background. So what I have essentially been doing over the last three years has been been building decision-making tools and tools to actually help leaders create better environments in their organisations. And sometimes that might be around solving a problem like their employee engagement or their stakeholder engagement. Other times it might be around psychological safety and driving performance within organisations or actually just mitigating the risk that they're exposed to that they might not know about as a result of that. So it's it's really quite diverse. At the moment it's workforce strategy because we're looking at diversity and inclusion and, of course, that's one of the first stages of psychological safety. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's an incredible body of work underpinning what you're talking about there. You know, you talk about I'm, I go in and I help, but... The science behind the work that you do, you've developed some amazing tools for organizations, for boards. I'm looking at Legacy Leadership right now, fabulous book. I love the way that you've written this book because it's really easy to dive into. It's really easy to just get that message. And I think that really is the struggle that we have in our work is that People know what they should be doing, but it's actually getting them to to get the message sometimes that's the real difficulty. 
what do you do that really hits home that that helps businesses understand why the way that they're behaving is a problem great question yeah thank you for for mentioning the book so I authored that book last year I think it was published and based on about 800 interviews with senior business leaders over eight years as part of a women on boards future women leaders program and really that was talking about what the modern day problems were and what they were seeing and what they had to actually go through. And a lot of that was workforce management. It was having to juggle financial reporting against people reporting. It was simple things like, probably not so simple, but I guess it was the fact that there were so many things that they were juggling at the time that things became quite complex. And then, of course, when I started writing it, COVID hit. Yeah. And that gave me time to spend more time writing the book but also we were seeing a lot more complex issues start to rise and so we sort of were able to look at what does that mean under crisis management what type of things do we need to look at there but most of the time what we're solving is really simple communication issues at its simplest form that we don't know how to have those difficult conversations Often I'm going in there and that's almost the first thing we're doing. How do we have those difficult conversations and creating a safe space so that the two people that are in that conversation are leaving in a positive way, not a negative way? That's probably one of the biggest challenges that, that they were facing. The others were, you know, the big pull against shareholder versus stakeholder. Who comes first? You know, is it customer and is it our employees or is it the shareholder that's waiting for expectations? And you know, I think sometimes in the way that we've done our AOCD training, you know, shareholder is mentioned an awful lot and maybe we should be talking stakeholder, which looks at the whole economic situation and the, the community of stakeholders as opposed to just one person or one group of people within those stakeholders. So that was always a big challenge for people as well. And then on top of that, you've got multicultural diversity that's happening not just with our customer base and stakeholder groups but also our partnerships that we're trying to leverage in terms of suppliers in terms of contracts because we've got such a global economy to now our workplaces and the fact that we're in 2022 now and workforce issues are a global problem and we're having to rely on very much a multicultural workforce to actually start filling in those gaps so Again, when you go back to quality of conversations, how are we making people feel safe in those conversations when they're from multicultural backgrounds? And all of that, of course, leads to psychological safety, which, you know, when I look at some of that research that went into the book, we weren't really using that term. We were using people need to be able to speak up. They need to be able to feel safe. They need to be able to trust. We need a level of respect. We need to coach people and mentor them, not tell them what to do and how to do it. We've got to change from these leadership styles, from command to to servant or to what we call legacy. But so these were some of the issues that they they were even talking about then. But yeah, always the workforce challenges have been an issue since day dot. You know, so that's eight years ago in terms of this research. So look, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the bugbears that I have is that we tend to put all of these things that you mentioned into a bucket called soft skills, right? As though they're kind of the easy things that everybody does while they're running a business. But actually, 
these are the hardest skills. The communications, those critical conversations, that critical decision making, that just providing an environment for everybody to be their best is actually a very high skill. And it it takes a lot of work to develop those type of skills. So I get really annoyed when we see soft skills. But also she was speaking now, I was thinking, you know, we, we do talk about helping women find their voice. We do talk about helping women feel like they are being heard. And I think sometimes we just put too much pressure on us as though we're not performing as well as others are or you know the men are are better at speaking than we are but it's actually coming back to the environment that we're speaking in and how we're being heard so do you have any personal experience of being in a working environment where you don't feel valued where you don't feel heard is that where the body of this work is is coming from because you seem to really to get it you know I've, I've had experiences in the past where I've just felt sick about some of the conversations that I'm going into. I've been in in a board meeting where I really have a different opinion to everybody else. And I've had to grapple with, you know, do I put this opinion forward? Do I speak up? Do I say how I'm feeling and risk being, you know, Sally that derails the meeting? Or am I focused on my fiduciary duty and it's really important that I do it? So what's been your experience experiencing psychological safety, effective communications, feeling valued? Yeah. Look, my experience has been the same. And I guess about two years ago, so about 2021, I started doing refresher courses with the AOCD and whatever course I could possibly do with the Governance Institute because I was working for or with the banking and finance industry and I was on a board and advisory to a couple of other boards. And I guess in one of those situations, I went to a how to optimize performance with the Governance Institute, which was a very good course. Yeah. But I was running a bit late. And so I sort of was taking a moment just to take a breather and I doodle all the time. So I had my pen in my hand and I was just listening to the conversations that were around me. And there were about four or five tables. And when I started looking down at my sheet of paper, there was this thing going toxic, just horrible chair, don't listen, can't speak up, can't have a conversation, fighting about minutes, not recorded properly approval processes and I started looking at this going oh my god what's going on here what sort of environment are we in here we are supposed to be talking about optimizing the performance of our boards and our organizations yes and the discussion is very much not about that it's it's about you know this diabolical team that we're a part of that that's just not working and the dynamics are not right so I started asking a few questions and, and that was around, well, how, how safe do you feel in your own boardroom? And that being the boardroom being board members to committee members to senior executives to your executive leadership team to sometimes it's just your senior management team. So what's this environment that we're creating in a boardroom, which is supposed to be where we're doing our crit- critical decision making? So I started doing my own research, which was quite costly and time consuming, but you know, it was something that I was really passionate about. So I had studied neuroscience and leadership 
and had looked at from a customer perspective, how do we deliver better customer experience? Well, we, we need to have employees that are engaged, that are willing to problem solve, that are, you know, wanting to learn and can share information. And so I kind of went, well, this should be applied in the boardroom, right? And, and what are the implications if we don't have that safety in the boardroom? So as a result of that, we went out with a huge survey, but I also did a number of interviews with people and surprisingly or unsurprisingly, you know, I think four out of 10 said that they felt psychologically unsafe. And when you're looking at this, I mean, we talk about women and absolutely in my position, I think I was really a marketer. If you put me in, if you wanted to put me into one position or pigeonhole, I come from a marketing background, really strong CX, customer experience background and organisational experience. So often when I went onto a board, it was, well, we want you to be heading up the marketing committee and we want you to focus on all those all those programs. And I'm like, but, but I want to be in the wherever the people are. I want to be if it's in your risk or if it's in your governance, wherever you position it, if it's around people and, and optimising them and mitigating our risks, that's the committee I want to be on. And I think, you know, that goes back to for us all to feel safe, we like to pigeonhole and stereotype people so that we feel better about ourselves, but we probably need to ask ourselves, well, what's that's got more to do with you than to do with me, right? Yeah. And the interesting thing was on, on this in a, in a banking and finance arrangement, because I came from the energy industry, I was the only one sitting there that actually had AFMA accreditation. So, you know, I was probably one of the most knowledgeable around some of the banking and finance industry at that table at the time. So, yeah, it was kind of, you know, this this need, I think, to make ourselves feel better and to to then put everyone in their places that make us feel more comfortable is, is a real issue on a board. But the stories that I've also had from men and the survey that we did, 70% of respondents were men, they felt the same. So a lot of them felt like they couldn't, have an opposing position or challenge the status quo because they were brought on the board with that tap on the shoulder by a, a colleague or a friend and they felt like they couldn't challenge that person because that would be disloyal. So, And they were getting quite frustrated with the things that were being run but didn't feel safe in speaking up or, or doing something different. So that to me was something that I'm going, okay, this isn't just a female thing. It's not just a minority thing. But interestingly, there were only about 4% that identified as being part of a minority group, whether it be a cultural one or a, or a gender one. So I found that, you know, it's across the board. But I think one of the hardest things to read as part of that research was that only 14% of people that are in these boardrooms making these decisions actually felt like they were being valued and that their skill sets and their strengths were actually valued as part of that decision-making process. And so when we said to them, well, then how, how effective do you think the board is at making decisions? Only 25% said that they were highly effective. You know, and I think that's quite scary. And when you look at some of the things that are happening, Dreamworld to the Crown Casino to so many different industries that are struggling at the moment, whether it's, you know, companies hitting the wall to boards under pressure and a lot more scrutiny, I think you've got to go back to, yeah, what's that environment? What are we creating? Are we creating one where we where we are actually appreciating when people challenge it or are we sending out a message that's really clear that says, don't even ask, you know, we don't need you to know, you stick in your spot, stay in your square and 
and we'll all get along really well. Yeah, that's really frightening because when you're talking about 14% of people on board feel that they that they trust the environment in, that they feel safe that in the environment that they're in, the average Australian board, you're talking about one person on every board feels like they're in a safe space and a great environment to do their work effectively. So what are some of the challenges that the other people around the board, and this this work applies to all levels in the organisation, so we're talking about boards specifically right now, but this could be the executive team, it could be the marketing team, but generally in a team environment, what are the, the people who aren't feeling safe, aren't feeling trusted, What are the things that they're experiencing? Just to clarify that, that 14% were the ones that went, we don't feel valued around the board. Yet 30% said we, only 30% said we feel safe enough to speak up and to actually challenge. Right. So 14% don't feel valued. 14% don't feel valued, but 36% feel they can, can challenge the status quo. But only three out of ten, so thirty percent, actually felt they trusted the people that they were sitting with in that boardroom. So, you know, when we started looking at, well, what's going on? We're kind of going, what's the real driver of some of those things? And only twenty nine percent said that they felt like information was properly shared around the boardroom table because knowledge was seen as this position of power. So, you know, why would you give that power away to somebody else if? if that was critical to, to you and your authority. Only 27% thought that their board was actually accountable for, for decisions and had a strong accountability framework. And I cannot tell you how important accountability is because when we talk about psychological safety, you know, we're talking about do you actually feel like you're part of that team? So do you feel like your skills are valued and that you're, that you're welcomed and that you belong? Our second one is, do you actually feel like you can ask questions? So if we're looking at trying to get an organisation who's got workforce issues where they're actually wanting people to step up or retrain or upskill, unless they've got an environment to learn, that's not going to happen. And then you need an environment to contribute. So if you want to start looking at innovation, and we know that we need digital innovation, we know that customers are more demanding, we've got remote workplaces, we've got remote delivery. You know, so we need people to be able to contribute and tell us what's going on and give us feedback. But if you haven't created that environment, you're never going to know what's going on. So the perception starts to widen between what a board thinks they know and what our customers actually believe. And that that has continued to be an issue for years and years. You know, I think there was a report once that said, oh, something like 97% of the boards think that the customers, uh, you know, love the work that they're doing and yet only 8% of customers did. So don't quote me on that, Sally. I think that's wrong. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's an issue around board effectiveness generally, right? Boards don't understand how to evaluate how they're doing. And part of that is they don't have the time to do it. You know, no one's busier than the board is. But also it's around what do we measure? How do we measure? And, you know, I've seen it done really, really badly where the chair will say, okay, and now on to board effectiveness. Everybody rate us out of 10. How effective do you think we're being? And they go around the table and say, oh, I think we're an eight. I think we're doing really, really, well, I think we're a seven. We're not too bad, but we've got some room for improvement and no actual outcomes or specifics or anything 
that they can work on. But what your body of work does is allows the board to really get a good sense of where are they at right now? So how are they feeling in terms of their decision making? How are they feeling in terms of the conversations that they're having? And all these things are interlinked, right? You talk about innovation. Well, we need diversity in order to be innovative. But if we're going to have diversity, then we need inclusion. There's no point having a Noah's Ark approach and two of everything if only the lion gets hurt. You know, you need you need that really good variety, but you need that inclusions too. So what does inclusion look like? So all of these things are interrelated, but what was fascinating for me is that there are a couple of things on the map that are more important than others, if you like. So we were having a great chat about director's insurance and your work has actually identified the boards that are more at risk than other boards of a potential lawsuit. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I guess when we go in, we look at, um, well, I guess if, if we looked at what the challenges that people are facing at the moment, number one is workforce issues, or, or I should say number one is actually mental health and fatigue. When we, uh, I did some research for a year just looking at medium and, and large-sized businesses, and they said, we're, we're exhausted we are doing the job of three or four people. So a lot of the mental health and fatigue challenges that they're having are coming from the fact that their workforce is not up to speed. So we've got workforce issues. Yeah. But when we looked at the third one, you know, it was around these change and transformation and whether they're successful or the failure of them and the need to upskill the people that are doing the work at the moment. So when we do psychological safety and, and I guess the assessments and benchmarks that we've developed, so founded in neuroscience and basically we try to give leaders the evidence that they need to be able to take action so that if everything's based in evidence, but also that it's the simplest and most tailored way forward because we can just spend so much money on a scattergun approach, which I think is what a lot of our culture work has done in the past, what a lot of our engagement surveys have done in the past. But what we do is we, we look at the neuroscience of the teams and we go, what in particular is going on with this team specifically? Where can we learn from other teams? But in particular, how do we adapt the communication to suit this team here? So it's very much driven by that. And with the leader, and sometimes you could say that the chair is that within the board, you know, 70% of influence on that team performance is based on the leader. So we look at that as well. So when we're going into the boardrooms, what we want is high-quality decision-making, you know, because when we don't have high-quality decision-making, we have accidents, we have fair work complaints, we have mental health claims. Not only that, we then have customers churning at an astronomical rate. We have our employees leaving at an astronomical rate. We're losing all of our knowledge and we're losing a lot of our competitive ability because we're losing our people and we're losing our customers who will go elsewhere. So, you know, what we're saying is let's turn things around a little bit. Let's, A, measure the right thing, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a real bugbear of mine. Let's not measure internally if we've only got a 20% trust rate through our leadership team. It's really not a great idea to be doing things internally if, if we've already got trust issues. Yes. That's the reason they're going outside of the organisation. So I think we need a little bit of bravery you know, within our boardrooms and, and within our C-suite to go, right, let's actually see what's going on. I mean, I would certainly want to know about something before the papers do or before the public gets a hold of it, you know, 
that's when you've lost control of the situation. So if we, we talk about, you know, in a neuroscience perspective, having some certainty and actually having some control of the situation, well, to me, it's about finding out these things before anyone else does and actually looking at resolving them. So that to me is number one. So if I, if I looked at that in terms of then taking that into a boardroom situation, we're often looking at this realignment of strategy that needs to happen. There's so much dysfunction in terms of that at the moment where the board is saying one thing or, or we can't even get agreement on it and then to the execution of it being totally outside of what it is. So I think we need to have more conversations around realigning that strategy because strategy and purpose are so important. Out of that, we have a values conversation, which is what values do we need to be able to deliver on this strategy? And we then what does the behaviours look like around that? So these are all starting to then form down into, right, if these are the behaviours that we have, these are the things that we need for people to feel inclusive. This gives them the accountability framework around it. The psychological safety isn't just being nice. It's having that accountability as well because without it, you don't know where your boundaries are. So these are the things that we're doing with boards and with organisations at the moment. When I look at a couple of years ago, I went to an insurance law conference and I was saying, what's, what's your number one problem? And, you know, they were having a discussion at the time saying, we can't foresee or forecast some of the mental health issues or claims that we're getting through. And I guess at the time I was going, oh, does our psychological safety, does that do that? And I really think it does. So We've started to do a lot more work around survey, plus we do interviews for context. And at the moment, we're within a, a 12% error margin to say, we believe that within the next six months, these are the following claims that you're going to get. Now, for me, from a, an insurance perspective, that's critical. From an organisation's perspective in understanding what your future risk is potentially going to be and how to try and mitigate that before it becomes that, you know, that front page news item or before... Our regulatory environment at the moment is all over psychosocial hazards, you know, and you've only got to appear once in the paper. And so if those organisations that are getting government grants, that are already implementing government programs, to me, I'd be, you know, I'd be very careful about what I'm measuring and how I'm measuring it and whether I want to know about it before or after the career mail or the financial review rear window article. I think in terms of knowing or not knowing, it's often what can I do about it? You know, a lot of the times we don't want to know how bad things are because there's no sort of remedy anyway. So how much of what you do is able to fix some of those problems? So if we see that there's a lack of trust, if we see that there's poor communication, how much of that can be changed and how much of that is just about you've hired the wrong people, you need to let them go, how would that pan out? Yeah, look, a lot of the time, like I'm I'm a firm believer that I think HR has this term called unregrettable levers. <laughs> and I kind of go, if we're so strapped for workforce at the moment, surely that should not be a term that is, like, you know, relevant. But, you know, they're really talking about, I think, those brilliant jerks that kind of bring on, you know, high performers but are, you know, less than human and creating really toxic cultures. So I guess there's two ways. You can create the norms and the behaviour that has, well, actually, I'd rather behave and operate in that way. And if that means that we belong, then that's how we start to slowly change the culture. 
you know, boards set a really clear direction straight away around the culture by what they ask for, what they're actually critiquing, what they're actually asking questions about, what they're actually rewarding, you know, and I think we've got to be really careful about the KPIs and indicators that we're using, which KPIs are we actually rewarding and promoting, which ones are we actually questioning and how are we questioning it. So we send a really clear message about what's important and not. So it has to start there. And that's I think that's why we've always said it starts from the top because we're the ones that have to show that curiosity. So are we actually showing that curiosity in the right way and creating the environment that says this CEO can absolutely give us everything and no holds barred view of that because there is no blame here. All we want to do is identify what the issue is and resolve it together. And with the collective of this room, we have the intelligence, the smarts to be able to help that CEO and his team do the best of their ability. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think that's the thing because otherwise what we get, and it's really, you know, prominent in government reports, is these sanitised reports so that it's what they want to hear. But, you know, I'd want the other way. I want to know what the issues are so that we can actually start to solve them. And, you know, there was great work done by Amy Edmondson, you know, who, whilst she's not the founder of psychological safety, she certainly did a great amount of research and she started with a lot of clinical governance in hospitals and had this assumption that the highest performing team in hospitals were the ones that had the lowest reporting of issues and actually found the opposite, that the highest performing teams were the ones that had identified the issues and they were reporting on those issues and discussing how do we solve these issues, how can we do better. If patient experience is our number one concern and patient care is what we want to deliver, what could we do differently today that would actually make that better and what are some of the issues that have arisen that we need to resolve and solve together because we are the right people to solve that problem? Oh, I love that. You know, and I think that's what we really should be doing across any team. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I really agree. And my mind's just whirring at the moment, Carolyn, because I'm thinking of that that boardroom. It, the board is faced with so many problems that it needs to solve. It's faced with so many targets that it needs to achieve it's got the overarching strategy that it needs to perform it's time poor but actually that board that can stop and reflect and think about how we're doing things around here what are the environments we're creating just even you were saying there about the executive team sanitizing the reports and that's an issue that we have in all businesses right the exec team present to the board and I've heard it said before that If the exec team tells you that things are going really, really well, then things are going great. If the exec team tells you that things are great, then things are okay. (laughs) And if they tell you that things are okay, we've got lots of problems that you're about to find out about shortly, right? So, and that's true. You know, the board are the boss, if you like, and you want to put your best foot forward, but you're all there for the purpose of the business and creating an environment where the exec team can come to the board and say, I don't think you're asking me the right question or, you know, we have a real issue coming up that we're going to need to navigate and not wanting to sanitize those reports, not wanting to wear those rose colored glasses, but how much more effective would a board be if everything the executive team told them was honest and transparent and open and it would just change the 
the ability of the board to make a huge difference in their work. Yeah. And look, a lot of this comes back to then emotional intelligence, which, you know, you and I were discussing before. There's got to be an amount of self-awareness of people and how they, understanding how they respond to things and, and therefore what type of social intelligence they have. What are they, do they actually understand the impact that they're having on others? reading that room really well to understand, you know, have we have we still got a safe environment or have they are they feeling awkward now? And the other people around the room as well. So but likewise for some of the C suite, it's giving them some of that training as well. Because at some stage you've got to go, we've got to own this. We've got to so until we own it, we can't, you know, address it. So if we're still in blaming and shaming because we we don't have any accountability and we don't have any self-awareness or if we're denying that there is still issues because, you know, we have low self-awareness and low levels of trust, you know, these are sort of the things that we've got to actually get to the bottom of and that's why those soft skills that we speak about are often the things that are, you know, creating issues because they are people skills and human interactions and they're so unpredictable and we all have such different impacts but yeah they're really important the thing about people skills as well is that you just take for granted that everyone has excellent people skills right and you only it's only something you notice if someone does it badly so if a person is rude you notice that that person is rude but you never notice a person for behaving appropriately you never say oh they behaved appropriately in that meeting today so it's the thing that we only get to see when it's going badly and I think that's probably the toxicity that you talked about earlier things really go off the rails and then you can see the problem but for all of us we can all look at our our people skills our communication skills our emotional intelligence and we can all do better in all of those areas. And I guess the challenge that I'd like to throw out today is to create the environment in which you'd like to operate in. So create the environment for the team that you would like for the team that you report to. Absolutely. You know, there was a a question we asked and in the survey and it, it was, would you recommend a friend or a colleague into that board? You know, would you recommend a friend or colleague to go and work in that organisation? And there was a really strong correlation. It was 0.69, I think, in terms of the correlation of that. So if you want advocates as part of your business that are working for you, that are working around the table with you, then, yeah, you've, you've got to have the right environment. Otherwise, I think, you know, in terms of volunteer boards, that's going to be a struggle to get volunteers to spend time and effort that they could be spending with their family or doing something they love to come onto a toxic board where they've, you know, and we haven't even spoken about the legal and regulatory requirements here. You know, psychosocial hazards are, are becoming very, very critical. There's a lot of scrutiny. We've already got a code of practice from New South Wales and Victoria. That means that they've got some attention in this space but we've got respect at work developing at the moment. When we do our psychological safety assessments, we do a change readiness assessment before we go in and do digital change or any big transformation project before or after a merger or acquisition. You know, we're actually highlighting what's the potential 
risk that we don't want to be facing in court that we need to mitigate immediately to actually make this organisation a success. So when you're looking at some of the regulatory and legal environment, this is something that should be at least in that top three. And there's not too many things that are on that boardroom agenda, despite the fact that we're that, that it is a busy place, that there are a lot of challenges that don't have human impact, either from a consequence perspective or you know, being driven by it. When we look at the workforce issues, when we look at cybersecurity, there's human interaction and engagement. When we look at customer experience, when we look at innovation, when we look at, you know, partnerships, supply issues, you know, there's there's a human element everywhere. And so I think we need to start going, well, on the balance sheet, what impact is this having? Yeah, I love that. I love that the human impact, the consequences, because it's not just what we do, it's the way that we do it that's critically important. That's how we're going to be judged. That's how we're going to work together. That's the the, the boardroom psychology, right? It's where you get groupthink and all of those things. People don't feel safe enough to stand out and, and stand for, for their own opinions and their views so you don't get the robust conversations, you don't get the, the innovation. So it's all boiling down to how we're behaving together and I I love this Carolyn because I think that there are some really great organizations out there that that teach boards about risk management and governance and and financial management and all of those things but without great human relationships and great people skills those boards are never ever ever going to get the outcomes that they're seeking so I want to congratulate you on your brilliant body of work I know that you commit to an annual survey that you do can you tell us a bit about the annual survey that you run yeah so the annual survey is the psychological safety in boardrooms so generally we ask for any board member committee member c-suite executive to frontline employee to participate if they're involved in you know some of those boardroom decisions so we'll be sending out the link for the second one But yeah, that's a great report. It's got a white paper attached to it, but anyone can download the highlights from the website for free. But the white paper goes into some of the consequences and looking at what are the implications of some of this. And yeah, the discussions that we've had have been wonderful. And when we talk about some of the impacts, you know, when you're having these conversations, you learn so much and you learn just how many mistakes we're making because we haven't got clarity around our strategy and around our conversations. Yeah, I love that. I love that this is a real, a tool, a framework that any board director, that any senior manager can use to instantly upskill. And and we talked about the book earlier, Legacy Leadership. What a great framework. I mean, broken down into what to do and how to do it, how to know when you're not doing it, what the consequences are. This is a brilliant handbook. So thank you very much for the time that you put in putting all that information together and making it simpler for the rest of us. I will put details in the show notes for the book, for the white paper, for your LinkedIn. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface though. I feel like I've got at least another 15 bullet points that I wanted to cover today. So I would love it if you come back on the podcast later on in the year, Carolyn, because I think this is a topic that we could just keep unpacking all of the time. Yeah, I'd be happy to. 
I learn from it every time. You know, there's always something different in the survey. I'm always asking you questions. The Legacy Leadership Book, I think it's, you know, every time I have a conversation with a new leader, they're giving me new pointers, new tips, different ways of doing things. And they're so willing to share and to talk about their experiences. So I love where that book has started in having those six core um, principles. And I guess the foundations and then the 12 principles are about, yeah, we, we are under stress. We are constantly challenged. We have got things being thrown at us. But how do we stick to that true north without slipping? Because, you know, as you know, in ethics, you know, once you've made that excuse the first time, it's really easy to keep going downhill from there and and, ease, and we lose all sense of accountability. You know, we're able to justify so many things. So so that's what the 12 principles were about. The six cores were like, have this as your foundation. At a bare minimum, work on this as your leadership competencies. But the principles are kind of to guide you when you're feeling you know, exhausted when you're feeling down, when you feel like you have got those mental challenges that are just depleted. How can we actually stay course? Yeah. As a team, really. Yeah. And I think sometimes you just don't know where to start. And what your book does is gives everyone a starting point. So whether you start with, you know, the psychological safety or whether you start with the emotional intelligence or just who are we focused on here? Is it the stakeholder? Is it the shareholder? It just gives everyone a starting point to come back from wherever they're at. So when it, whether they're feeling exhausted, whether they're feeling stuck, it's going to give them the turnaround and the next step in their own personal, professional development. Thanks very much for joining us today, Carolyn. It's been absolutely wonderful to unpack some of these mind-blowing statistics. I think everyone has the perception that boardrooms are very well run and they're you know, the best leaders in the country and they're all sat around getting on really well together but we know that's not the case and this is really really great work with building the boardroom of the future that we all want to see so thank you very much for your work and thanks for joining us today thank you thanks Sally thanks very much for tuning in I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and what you took away from it I'd also love to know what topics you're interested in hearing about in the future and which experts you think should be featured on this Board Success podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please share with your colleagues who might also have an interest and make sure you click to follow or subscribe to be advised of our upcoming episodes. In the meantime, if you're a leader or a successful executive and you're looking to launch your board career, or if you're an established non-executive director and you're ready for the next level, Check out the resources we have available for you on the website at boardcoachinginstitute.com.au. Until next time, here's to your board success.